It was a lonely night. The air was full of mist connections and vape scent. As I came up the stairs after a long day of work telling people the elevator was broken, a woman was coming out of my apartment, locking the door behind her. She was dressed in a chicken suit. I tried to be friendly and said it reminded me of stir-crazy. When she took offense, I tried to explain it was a movie. It's a movie, I said, with Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor. That's Silver Streak, she said. There's no chicken in that. I would know. I used to work on a train. In fact, the same train with those guys who swapped murders. Strangers on a train? I asked. Yes, they were, she said. But they then got closer. You wouldn't understand. As she brushed by me on the stairs, I considered asking who was in the movie, the one she was talking about. I thought maybe they might have been in something I had seen, that perhaps we could forge a connection, and, like those two strangers on whichever train who ended up getting closer, we might eventually do the same, and finally find somewhere to deposit the secrets I sensed we both carried around. But when I turned, she was gone. A single, dirty, synthetic feather, the only proof that she had ever been there. That's Chris's homage, correct me if I'm wrong, Chris, to the legendary Joe Frank. It was very hard to try to write in that voice because I love Joe Frank so much. People are wondering what the hell Joe Frank has to do with After Hours, the 1985? Yes. Martin Scorsese classic. But Joe Frank does have a little to do with it. I mean, yes, more well, I guess a bearing... to do with it. Okay, well, let's just get into yeah, that I... part of it. Chris, you'll do this better than I will. Give give the listeners, if they're not familiar with Joe Frank, a brief I will <laughs> Chris's <laughs> yes. emphasis uh, knowing, on brief. Knowing Chris, I'm going to try and Kirk No, I, I appreciate Yes, this episode is definitely hitting on a, a lot of cylinders for me. Joe Frank is a radio pioneer and monologist who worked mostly on different public radio stations. I think he started in New York, but made most of his stuff in California from the 70s up until the early 2000s. And he actually died, I think, just two years ago. He would write these very strange, surreal monologues, which he would deliver with music behind them. And he also would have these quasi-improvised scenes with a cast of characters and friends and actors. But it was this very strange, dark, surreal, and unique voice, which has become very influential in today's radio slash podcast culture. Joe Frank had a bit that he did called Lies. He met her in a deli. She was short, blonde, a little plump. They were alone in the back where the sandwiches were made. It was around 5 p.m. Most people were going home from work. He asked her what was good, and she said everything. They talked about roast beef sandwiches and how some delis didn't know how to stack the roast beef slices. She pointed at a tin of biscuits she said were particularly good, and they joked about dieting, and it had the cadence of witty repartee without the wit. When it was almost time for the conversation to end and for them to take their sandwiches and leave, she looked at him with a slight pout and said, Do you like bagels and cream cheese? When he said he did, she asked if he'd be interested in any bagel and cream cheese paperweights. She had a friend staying in her apartment who made plaster of Paris bagel and cream cheese paperweights, and this friend and her paperweights were getting on her nerves. The only way she could get rid of her was to help her sell the paperweights so she could afford to find her own place. He wasn't at all interested in buying paperweights, 
and he had the impression she wasn't really interested in his buying them either. But he took her name and number and told her he'd give her a call. From that, you really have what is the jumping off of After Hours and the screenwriter, Joe Minion, who did a fantastic job. I think it's important to separate the vast amount in the screenplay that is wholly original from the kernel that obviously is a direct lift from this radio bit. To the point that the original title for the script was Lies. Which is weird because if you're going to rip something off, why be so overt? I guess it does beg the question, did he rip it off or was it meant to be an homage? He started writing it when in Columbia Film School. Maybe he thought because it's an academic setting, like, oh, I'm being inspired inspired by this piece. And then when it got some traction, he didn't do his due diligence. I mean, the man has, hasn't had much of a career since. Probably because of the plagiarism charge, Joe Frank was paid a settlement. And I have not been able to find anywhere where Joseph Minion addresses this. To deepen the mystery a little further, one of the taxi drivers in the film is played by an actor. Larry Block. You might recognize him in the, he's, he's the driver of the cab. I worked cab. with him. You worked with Larry Block? Yes. <laughs> I mean, I was saving it, but yes, I did a play with him actually around the corner at what used to be The Flea. The Flea has since moved. Okay. We both played Russian guys. You know, I mentioned that there were a lot of quasi-improvisational phone call things. Larry would be on a lot of those, mm-hmm. you know, and if you listen to them, and I recognized it as soon as he told me. Yeah. And I think it even came up because, you know, for people who don't know from theater, you know, you get some late nights, particularly when you're sure. getting close to opening. And they used to play Joe Frank at midnight. Uh, it's right. either midnight to one or 11 to midnight yes. on WNYC. That's right. I loved it so much. Yeah. I would specifically like move errands or leave places at times so that I could listen on the radio as it was played. And I think it might have been one time either just getting out of rehearsal. I was listening to it and he told me that he was on it. Wow. And then he told me about working with Joe Frank. And he said that, you know, Joe Frank was a great guy, mm-hmm. but he, you know, he had his issues, including health issues. Health that issues, him. Yeah. Larry himself was like a great, as you'll see from, you know, he's fantastic in this movie. A great character actor, very sort of New York type who did a lot of shows, a lot of small TV movie stuff. He was just very around. He was very much a, a that guy. So Larry Block's presence in the film has been cited. There was a couple articles written about this issue in that 11 minute Joe Frank piece. You have meet cute, although it happens in a different environment, happens in a deli as opposed to a diner. Right. But you do have the introduction of the bagel and cream cheese paperweights. You then have other plot elements that appear in the relationship between Marcy and Griffin Dunn's character in After Hours, including her story of her rape, which is used in the movie as one of these tone shifting moments where you as a viewer are left uncertain of exactly what is going on. I read the screenplay for this in addition to watching it. And, you know, screenplays usually are not a fun read. However, the screenplay is a little roomier than the movie itself. And mm-hmm. there's a bunch of additional exposition and other scenes that were, were eventually cut out, some of which you can see on the After Hours DVD. But man, it's a great reading screenplay. And I saw a couple references that said, if you're an aspiring screenwriter, seek out and read this screenplay. In its own way, it really is a masterclass. It's so funny. The characters are very sharply drawn. And, and it's tight. It's it efficient moves. as everything hell. That is, everything oh that is there, God. there is a payoff. And I guess this is why I had a sort of sympathetic thing of thinking of it as an academic exercise is because what it took from there is pretty much the setup. And the fact that it took that and was inspired by that and then went further and did something different with it, to me, seemed very exciting. And as somebody who likes when, you know, artists respond to each other, that seemed like an exciting thing to me, though, of 
course, the very fact that he lifted direct details without giving any kind of credit is inexcusable. My experience of Joe Frank was probably similar to yours. I remember very distinctly being home, listening to the radio around that midnight to 1 a.m. time frame, hearing this voice and wondering, what the hell is this? Now, I've I've been a fan of kind of alternative radio stuff. I love Phil Hendry. Phil Hendry is a radio guy who is kind of a internet troll before one ever existed. He would be himself and he would say, and we're joined today by Chris. And Chris is the leader of the National Youth Employment Association. So Chris, you believe that children at the age of five or six should be allowed to work. And then he uh-huh. would do the voice of a character. And he was so skilled at this, he could even somehow talk over himself. Wow. And then what would happen is he would open the phone lines and people would call up outraged and he would bait them in the voice of this character that he created. I remember lying and listening all of a sudden that Joe Frank tone and just the way he writes and the specificity of his weird details. I wondered if maybe Joe Minion like just listened to it on the radio and somehow osmosed it into himself, but it's way too specific. But I never knew that whole story until digging into the movie this time. Me neither. I really appreciated the craft and Scorsese's part in it. It's one of the best commentary tracks because they intercut the reminiscences of Scorsese, of Thelma Schoonmaker, his lifelong editor, of the cinematographer, and of Griffin Dunn and his producing partner. Amy Robinson. You know, now living in this digital age when everybody's a hyphenate, that's exactly what they were doing. Amy Robinson and Griffin Dunn were both actors who were not working as much as they would have liked, like pretty much every actor. So they were Who's dipping the their toes more into than they would like. There's the old joke that, you know, what's the way to get an actor to complain? Give him a job. <laughs> but the two of them dipped their toes into producing. And I think this might have been their first fully produced feature. They produced Baby It's You, which also starred Rosanna Arquette. Okay. But, Still um, relatively young, and both of yes. them had had some credits. They came across this script and both really liked it. In fact, they came across it at Sundance, optioned it, and went to get it made. And they wanted Scorsese, I think, from the beginning. But then, Wait, before you tell that story, sure. going back to the Sundance moment, so much of great stuff comes from completely random moments that have yes. nothing to do with any genius or brilliance. She was at Sundance. This 83. must have been one of the first couple Sundance. Yeah. There was a director from some tiny country who heard she was from New York City and he handed her this screenplay. So she went back to her hut, not a hotel. She like, they were literally <laughs> staying in huts. And, it. and you know, lo and behold, my God, it was great. And that was Lies by Joseph Minion. The person might have been a Yugoslavian director yes. named Dusan Makaviev. That's exactly who it was. And he was Joseph Minion's teacher at Columbia. Aha. Uh-huh. So that was the connection. So then they optioned it, and that leads to Marty and where he was, which is really fascinating. Marty was down. He was interested, but Last Temptation of Christ was going to go forward. Which was his dream project. And uh, In fact, it was more than looking like it was going forward. It had been in pre-production. He had the money. This was finally going to happen. Yeah. And he was going to work on it with Michael Ballhouse, who was the cinematographer. So they went to Tim Burton because they had seen a short cartoon called Vincent, which they were very impressed with. And so they they were like, great. I'd actually seen it attached to some a Disney movie that I happened to go see a short called Vincent by a, uh, a cartoonist named Tim Burton. And we said that guy would be really good to do after hours. So we sent it to to Tim Burton. And he said, wow, this is this is incredible. But somewhere about maybe a month and a half, two months into after the time we met him, uh, we get a phone call uh, saying that Last Temptation of Christ had fallen apart. And we said, well, uh, we're, we're actually uh, 
We're talking to, we've already kind of started, well, all right, let, 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 we'll figure it out. We'll, we'll, let's just, so we're talking to Tim and we said, um, you know, Tim, the funniest thing happened today. Um, you know, we get this call from uh, Martin Scorsese's attorney, uh, who's also our attorney. You know, we sent him this script like months and months ago. You know, he goes, yeah, yeah, I mentioned that. He goes, well, his picture fell apart and, um, you know, it's the first thing he read that uh, he really wants to do, and he wants to do this movie. Isn't that weird? But anyway, uh, so anyway, back back to our movie. And uh, he said, wait a minute, did you say Martin Scorsese wants to do this movie? I went, yeah. He goes, and you sent it to him first? And we went, well, yeah. And he went, I, I, I gracefully withdraw from the project. I wondered in the retelling, was Tim Burton basically saying like, wait a minute, you're talking to someone else about this? Like, then you're not really serious about talking to me about it. Did he have total awareness of his place at the time on the food chain and say, well, obviously, if Marty wants to do it, he's going to do it. So could be. He did that, whether he did it out of a calculating sense. Maybe he was scared. You know, he hadn't done a feature. Right. Maybe because he wanted to get on Martin Scorsese's good side. Whatever it is, telling the story that way, that they even gave him that agency in the telling. I'm wondering what sort of Tim generous. Burton's first feature film was. It might well have been Pee-wee's Big Adventure. You're correct. Pee-wee's Big Adventure, same year as this. That was the same. Yep. Wow. And so Marty, in addition to his dream project falling apart, had also come off a couple films where the scale of the filmmaking had gotten so large. It's such a far cry from where he started with Mean Streets, working with a 20, 25 person crew, having the fluidity of a 40 day shoot as opposed to a 140 day shoot. For Scorsese, he needed something to do because his dream project had fell through. It was going to be a much lower budget feature than his previous features. It was an opportunity to work more in the style of his roots. And he had moved to Tribeca around the same time, and he hated it. It was a bohemian culture, and he was coming from an Italian-American culture from Little Italy, and the twain did not meet. He is like, I could not wait to get back uptown myself. I wanted the elevator to work. I didn't right. want to walk up and down the stairs. I wanted there to be shops and stores and restaurants, which at and the I time- And I didn't want to be accosted by these weirdos. Though, of course, Martin Scorsese not only has the Irishman that's out, but there's been this flap over his comments about the Marvel movies, and he's now, of course, an elder statesman. But it's real interesting, and this this will, when we get more into the film, there's so much in this film about art and mm -hmm. about living a normal life, but appreciating Bohemia. Yes. The part of Paul Hackett that really wants to transgress. Yeah. And yet feels, it's not that he feels guilty about it. He is treated as if he is guilty, which yes. of course is Martin Scorsese's Catholic upbringing. But I think his response, what brought him to it is exactly what Paul Hackett is going through. Yes. And you have that also playing out, like you said, with his experiences with the studio system and yes. the larger films that kind of took something away from, rather offered him something, but he felt a kind of punishment being meted out by God through the experience of it, which just the last point on it, after Hours is Martin Scorsese's Phantom of the Paradise. There are a lot of the same themes in this. Michael Ballhaus is a fascinating, brilliant cinematographer. He had come up in Germany and had gotten his formative experience working with Fassbinder. He had shot 40 movies before coming to America and making this movie in 1985. 
He had shot 16 movies in eight years with Fassbender alone. Have you seen a lot of Fassbender? I haven't seen a lot. I've seen one or two. I think at one point I was like, you know, this is some guy I'd really like to learn more about. Yeah. And I think I looked at his IMDb page. Too big. The sheer number. I was like, forget it. Ballhouse was going to work on Last Temptation of Christ. And so they ended up working together on this. Uh-huh. And when they were doing pre-production, Ballhouse realized that in order to accomplish this in 40 nights, because this is entirely shot at night. Ballhouse says, number one, that was great because as a cinematographer, he has total control over the light. In the daytime, you've got to block light out and light is more your enemy depending on the scene that you're shooting. Whereas at night, he was like, I just had the camera pretty much wide open all the time using available light. He realized that they would need to do 16 shots or setups per night, which is insane. But in order to do so, they had to have a crew that was about 20 people. And he had to work with a crew that he knew could do this on the fly. So the first time they were on the set, they set up the first shot in the movie, which is actually Paul Hackett getting into the taxi cab. So they started to light it and Marty went to his trailer. 15 minutes later, Ballhouse knocked on Marty's trailer's door and said, okay, we're ready. And Marty was like, you're ready. Yeah, because usually this just takes like several <laughs> yeah. hours. So Marty came out and after that, he never went back to his trailer. And they all talk about how great it was to just be able to do that and to work like that on a movie set and to just kind of go from one thing to another to another. To actually do the things that you wanted. Yeah. The whole reason you get into this yeah. is to be doing that. You said the excitement that Martin Scorsese must have felt, especially after something so big to come back to this. And you can feel it in this movie. Yeah. And it's part of the nature of this picaresque tale. You you get that kind of, um, as one of the characters puts it. Different rules apply when it gets this late. You know what I mean? It's like... Uh, After hours. (laughs) Great titular line. Let's take a little look. We meet Paul Hackett, played by Griffin Dunn, who works as a word processor. A job title which would soon become an actual machine. That's how you know you're working in a dying industry. There's a great scene with Bronson Pinchot as a trainee. Listen to Bronson Pinchot's dialogue, which is so perfect. It's an example of the type of characterizations that exist in the screenplay on the page. And I read this screenplay, and this is exactly what's on the page. Pauses and all. That's one thing that Joe Minion was great at, is writing this dialogue that's so naturalistic, yet captures, in Bronson Pinchot's case, this presumptive striving and well, youthfulness. Youthfulness. Somebody at the yes. beginning of their career, but who has it was very different from Paul Hackett, who's also very youthful, but seems to have settled. He's settled, yeah. One thing about the dialogue and just this kind of movie, these are both the kinds of things that so many young writers do a shitty job of, mm-hmm. and everybody tries to do it. This forced casualness, the pauses, yes. the ums, the this and that. Also, a picaresque journey wherein every man, in quotes, just look at all the crazy things that happen to them. And then they, it seems like the easiest thing in the world, mm-hmm. but it, all those pauses and stuff are done deliberately by jo- Joseph Minion. Paul Hackett in this scene is with Bronson Pinchot, and we're learning important things about Paul Hackett through their interactions, but they're all informed by such wisdom. It's really an impressive accomplishment for such a young writer. Absolutely. Unless he ripped off a lot of other stuff that were on <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm going to format roller. Right. Now, file. Right. Right. And it's in memory. Right. And mark this down in the prefix file code. Prefix code. Right, right, right. Right. Okay. Good. Yeah, you got it. Another week, you have it down. It's temporary anyway. Hmm? I said it's temporary anyway. I do not intend to be stuck doing this for the rest of my life. Don't tell Mr. Dibbon that I said that, please. Okay. Because what I really want to do is, uh, I really like to get into publishing. You know, there just aren't any openings right now, but what I would love to do is just create a magazine 
my own magazine, um, which would be like a forum for writers and intellectuals who can't get into print anywhere else, who could, you know, I, I'm not into like editing or trying to reach a particular audience, getting it out there, they would get some momentum going, you know, and do, you know, do something with, with, you know, excuse me, And with that, Paul Hackett leaves the gilded gates of his office building and emerges into the city. End of daytime. You know, the gates close behind him as if it's the end of the day. And this all will take place at night where morality is different. People are different. Parts of you that you've kept repressed all day are able to uh, have a little free reign. Even in that first opening three minutes, you have these tour de force Scorsese tracking shots. Yeah. That's one of the great strengths of the movie. It's bringing this degree of filmmaking to a confection of sorts. Mm -hmm. Scorsese uses his capability as well as he does in operatic works of art like A Taxi Driver or Raging Bull or The Irishman. You know, it's funny. This is also, to my mind, I can't think of another Martin Scorsese comedy. King of comedy? Uh, kind of, but I mean, it's more of a tragedy. I mean, this to me is the most comedic. He has such a good eye for it. Pacing all due credit to um, yeah. Joe Frank. <laughs> Joe Minion. But no, it's Scorsese. True, but he never really tried to do much comedy after that. It sort of sticks out on his IMDb page as a very unique film. And uh, well, in the same way that, that it Out better. of Sight ended up happening to Soderbergh, this just presented itself to Martin Scorsese at a time when he was kind of open to doing it because it's sure. not really something that he would have been attracted or drawn to. Except for thematically. We now have a toll-free telephone number. That's and right. And we would like listeners to call us. Let me log in so I can figure out what our number is because I purposely chose a good one. And what we want you to do is something like call us and leave us a message. Do I need to be That's more it. specific than that, Chris? Yeah. You could say anything you want. You anyway. can have suggestions of what we should do, shouldn't do. You Tell know. us a movie that you've got to watch all the way through whenever it's on. Things that you hate in movies. I would think that something we would have fun with is if people said, I want you guys to address this trope and let us find some examples to say, we got this great voicemail from a listener and they mentioned this filmic trope. Call us toll free 855-755-5322. That's 855-755-5322. That is very memorable. Yeah. Eight Five five seven five 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 three two two. Yeah. Um, now, Chris is going to record a clever voicemail thing so that when you call, you're going to hear him and he's going to figure out how to do yeah, it. Yeah, there's value added. Roseanne Arquette, amazing. Oh, yes. And it was really fun to watch this and appreciate her all over again. She's so iconic and so of her time. It's like one of those performers, it's kind of easy to forget that they're actually incredibly good. I associate her with that time. I guess Desperately Seeking Susan. Baby It's You is a great John Sales movie. I don't know if you've seen that, that but one, it's no, no. really good. So Baby It's You is 83. But in this, she is so, well, you understand Paul Hackett's being appealed to. Of course. Interestingly, in the scene that we're about to play, the meet cute scene is one of the scenes that the cinematographer says best represents how great Marty is at working with actors. He said in this scene, Michael Bauhaus could tell that Scorsese wasn't quite pleased with the results that he was getting when she would do this scene Uh for whatever reason, but Marty wasn't expressing that. Instead, what he did was he let her finish the take and he said, okay, we got it. That's great. Um, I'll tell you what, we got a little time. Do one more and just do whatever the hell you want. Repeat your lines if you need to. Don't worry about the flow or the tempo. Just like do whatever you want. Let's, I don't know, maybe we'll get something. And this is the take that ended up in the movie. Husband was a movie freak. 
Actually, he was particularly obsessed with one movie, The Wizard of Oz. He talked about it constantly. I thought it was cute at first. On our wedding night, I was a virgin. And we made love. You've seen the film, haven't you? The Wizard of Oz? Yeah, I've seen it. Well, we made love. Whenever he, you know, when he came, he would just scream out, surrender Dorothy. That's all. Just surrender Dorothy. Wow. Oh, instead of moaning or saying, oh, God, or something normal like that. I mean, it was pretty creepy. And I, I told him I thought so, but he just, he just couldn't stop. He just, he just couldn't stop. He just couldn't stop. <laughs> he, he said he didn't even realize it was happening. <laughs> he just couldn't stop. So I just broke the whole thing off. Oh, sorry. I, I guess I'm really putting you through the mill tonight. It's okay, I'm used to it. You know, I still love him very much. In fact, we write each other every day. Naturally, I don't like to talk about it. We have the check. We write each other every day. That's uh, just one of those brilliant little turns in these stories. There's so many in every interaction he has where he's playing with, she's gorgeous. She's yeah. beautiful. But there's so many little landmines dropped along the way that it's either that she's just a downtown denizen who sort of plays by a different set of rules than our straight-laced hero. Or there's like real mental illness going yeah. on. And I love what you say because everybody in this movie is crazy except him. Until you realize, of course, he's also freaking crazy yes. too. The great thing about this movie, he thinks everything he is doing is normal. And every time something goes wrong, he's sort of, no, you don't understand. Like, But you also realize that he is just as strange as the rest of these people. In fact, one of the striking moments is after the Rosanna Arquette character commits suicide and he discovers her dead body. Yeah. First, he notices the tattoo, which is the same as the keychain on the bartender. And he starts to put together that maybe this is the boyfriend that she was telling him the story about. He also sees some of the scars slash burns that have been referenced by the right. Linda Fiorentino character. But then he also takes the sheet off of her body and admires it. It's one of those early hints. He's actually as twisted as everyone else, just that he has the veneer of yeah. civilization from residing above 14th Street. This is why he comes below 14th Street. The gates are closed behind him. It's no longer day. He can cut loose a little bit. That's, to me, what, what drives yeah. this whole movie. This relatively straight-laced guy who, unlike Bronson Pinchot, doesn't seem to want anything else except for this little transgression of basically getting laid. That drives him. And then one transgression yeah. leads to another, leads to another, leads to another. And he has these Scorsesean guilt moments. Yeah. He does something unconscionable, which is Marcy is so finally crazy that he flees, but circumstance brings him back and he realizes he needs to apologize. And he actually right. apologizes to her dead body before he realizes that she's dead. But to Rosanna Arquette, her brilliance, I think, is captured in this great scene. So in this scene, he has just experienced her temporary roommate, brilliantly played by Linda Fiorentino as the mad sculptress working in paper mache, who has asked him to take over the paper macheing and then asked him for a massage. 
And then she just falls asleep. And that's when Marcy comes home and discovers the two of them. There's this tracking shot that like in another movie, in a typical comedy, it would just be this brightly lit shot with straight cuts. But Scorsese does this thing where the camera swings around the bed. It's just such an amazing scene. And her kind of unhingedness at the very end is played so brilliantly. What'd you do to her? I didn't do anything to her. She was asleep. I mean, she just, she was tired. What do you mean, what did I do to her? Easy, easy, it was an innocent question. <sighs> Look, I'm, I'm gonna take a quick shower. I'll be right back, okay? Sure. Yeah, I mean, I think a shower probably do you good. I mean, you had a tough day. <laughs> I knew there was something special about you. I hope you don't have to get up early tomorrow or anything. No. Because I think you're somebody I can really talk to. And tonight I feel like... I feel like I'm going to let loose or something. I feel like... I feel like something incredible is really going to happen here. <laughs> I feel so excited and I don't know why. I feel it. <laughs> I'm glad you came. <laughs> Too. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to smoke a joint, there's a couple in there. Feel free. Uh, no, maybe later. <laughs> What's great about the movie and still is relevant today is if you had experiences in New York in the 70s, the 80s, the late 80s, the early 90s, this is familiar. The city is so vast and the nightlife so varied that you can go out as a younger person and there's an energy and a presence that you can ride and will carry you from bizarre experience to the next. Yes. I don't know what it's like now because I haven't left my house after 9 p.m. <laughs> You're or not gone missing much. Below 14th Street probably in 20 years, but I had my time out there. Scorsese talks about how much he cherished a late night cab ride from uptown to downtown, 2.30, 3 o'clock yeah. in the morning when you're at the mercy of the cabbie and that's why the cab driving scene is so brilliant. I was going to say, like, the fact I had forgotten that they do that, where he's coming downtown and he loses all his money. Yes. They speed up the taxi yes. cab as it's going down and he is getting thrown back and forth within the cab. It's so funny. Oh, it's fantastic. Yeah. Rosanna Arquette, which, by the way, let's dispel a couple rumors here. The Toto song Rosanna. That is not about Rosanna Arquette. Wow. She was dating Toto member Steve Picard. Toto keyboard player. So I read one thing that said the guy in Toto who wrote the song was basing it on a bunch of different women and that she kind of went along with the story as it progressed. And she was like, oh, yeah, they wrote it about me bringing them beer and juice in the studio at four o'clock in the morning. To call back to one of our iconic episodes, Point Break, yes. Patrick Swayze is in the Rosanna video. Oh, that's as right. Discussed. So I if you're looking for that whole story, make sure that you download our Point Break episode. Even if you're not, download it anyway. Griffin Dunn. This is definitely the best I've ever seen Griffin Dunn. Have you ever seen I Love Dick? Is that the Nixon one? No, that's that's just Dick. The, oh. I Love Dick is an Amazon TV series from a year or two ago oh. based on a novel. It's great. And this is Griffin the one Dunn, where like Kevin Bacon played yeah. like this Western sex symbol guy. It takes place like in an artist colony. And okay. Griffin Dunn, he's like a not not yet successful 
That's a generous way of putting it. career writer who goes to be part of this artist colony and his wife comes along. It's mostly about the wife and the, the obsession she develops with Dick, who is the main guy that this artist colony has sort of been built around. But Griffin Dunn in it, he is so good because it's one of those things, I think somewhat like this, an easily caricatured actor he gives a lot of dignity to. And, and where the story ends up, there are some really risky things that he like allows himself to do that mm-hmm. I found very, very moving. He is absolutely perfectly cast in After Hours. It's ridiculous. He has an anecdote where he and his producing partner were speaking with Scorsese and he says like, you think that these things are so spelled out. He's like, but we never really had the conversation with Marty like that I'm playing the part. Uh I was half expecting that like De Niro was going to be suggested and like, what am I going to do? So he's consumed with this and they're in like this meeting and his mind is just racing with a million different ways to try and like get the question answered. And he finally just says, I'm so sorry, I have to interrupt and have... I was sort of hoping to play the part myself. And Marty's looked at him and was like, yeah, of course. Yeah. Well, what are you talking about? I know that. I know that. I know that. Anyway, so anyway, but my God, he's so freaking good. More so than almost anything I could think of. I can't think of who else would do it. Nobody has that overlap of he comes across as a very nice guy, and yet there is depths underneath it. I love the line in the, the scene we just talked about where He's like, yeah, you should go take a shower. I think that'll be really helpful because he had a really tough day. Yes. Which is like, how the fuck? What does he know that she's had a tough day? But it's so theatrically, demonstratively nice in quotes. Yes. What else does he he have to offer? The next woman he becomes entangled with is, oh, you know, just another one of the most brilliant comedic actors of her time, Terry Garr. The way he meets her in the cocktail lounge where John Hurd is the bartender, Terry Garr. Everything is part of the FCAC cinematic universe now, 59 episodes in. You want more Terry Gar stories, you can go download our Close Encounters of the Third Kind. But here, if you're a Terry Gar fan, there is some classic Garian scenes. This is just a bit of one. Our hero, Paul Hackett, has been at the bar where she worked and borrowed the bartender's keys to go check on his alarm. But the bartender had to lock up the bar, locking in Paul Hackett's keys. And Paul Hackett had been given a mash note by Terry Gar as a cocktail waitress and finds himself back in her apartment. Waiting for the bar to get reopened. Just let it go, honey. Tell me your problems. I don't think so. Oh, lighten up. What is this? This doom and gloom and beat. Lucy, Goosey, come on. What are you talking about? Come on, tell me your problems. Where the hell is he? What the hell time is it? It's very late. Jesus. So, um, you really hate that job, huh? Yeah. I hate both of my jobs, you know? Oh, yeah? What else do you do? I work in the Xerox shop downstairs. Downstairs? Yeah. We're right on top of it. I've got the keys. You want to go down and see it? Um, no. Thanks. I've had about enough excitement for one night. It's a lousy job, but I can get free copies whenever I want to. Gee whiz. Hey, what is that? Gee whiz. I mean, are you humoring me? I'm gonna have to take that kind of shit, you know? I mean, what is it with people today? You can't say anything without getting some kind of a smart answer. You just have to be so goddamn careful about everything you say. You think I don't notice I know what's going on? I overhear the customers at the Xerox shop when they're making fun of me. Anything by that. I mean, it was it was raining outside, and I invited you to come into my home. I didn't have a 
do that. Now, did I? Now, first of all, you're not stupid. Look, I have trouble figuring out the tax on checks. So what? I mean, 8% is a bitch. So I make a few mistakes. So I make a few mistakes. So sue me. Call your lawyers. Okay, come on, come on. I'm sorry. I didn't mean it. Want to sit down? Come on, come on. Come on. I'm sorry I was rude before. I really am. Okay, no more crying, please. What a night. Hey, Paul. Hmm? Do you like my hairdo? Yes. Yes, I do. Why don't you touch it? I don't want to mess it up. You won't. I, you want me to? Yeah. Okay. Oh, oh I hear him. Ow, oh, I hear him. Oh, That's him. Oh, I hear him. I hear him. I hear him. No, no, it's okay. Oh, oh thank oh, God. Oh, He's there. He's there. Oh, I can go oh, home. Just, I, excuse me. Oh. What's the matter? Oh. Well, nothing. I, I just... You know, I really got the feeling that... that you kind of like me, no? I mean, you're not going to leave now, not after I brought you in out of the rain, are you? One of the heartbreaking things in the screenplay, and I was heartbroken to realize that it wasn't shot or got cut, in the screenplay where she says, touch my hair, before he gets his hand caught in her hair, which is what happens at the end of the scene, an actual bee emerges from the back of the beehive hairdo and like stings him. It's so <laughs> such a great. They didn't. I guess they didn't do it. Probably didn't have the bee wrangler. From I was about to say, you know, th th that's Candyman a relatively episode. new thing. Bee wranglers, God, Terry Gar, man. But I love the way that that apartment looks because there's so much of the fact that she oh, has the beehive hairdo, God. and you see no, never any mention of the 24 Aquanet yes. bottles in the kitchen, like right there. My favorite detail is the shot that you know it doesn't really play to much of anything except it is so real. Her bed is surrounded oh by rat traps, and later there's a scene when he comes back. Yeah. There's the scene where one of the rat traps goes off. And, and then he's going to cut away to a little rat struggling in the trap. And his jolt is so well done. I read that the reason is Griffin Dunn says, you know, he learned a lot of direct. Griffin Dunn's directed a bunch of things, too. Yeah. And he said, one of the things I learned from Marty is when you need an actor to have a really physical jolt reaction like he does when the rat trap happens. Marty has a box of glass bottles and he drops a cinder block into it. Jeez. And you don't know it. <laughs> and he's like, it gets everyone jolt out of their skin. Yeah. That's what he used That's to awesome. get that reaction. The set decoration, the the design of every individual space and apartment is so specific. You have this sort of bohemian loft yeah. versus this this woman who's working multiple jobs, who's apparently again oh. another great detail. She's sketching him uh, yes. as they're having the conversation because she's got some kind of artistic life, like <laughs> everybody you know, everybody below Fourteenth Street. She's playing the monkeys, and then as he says, like I had a really horrible night. She's like, oh, hold on. And she goes and she puts on Chelsea Morning by Joni Mitchell. Her, like, dance when she asks. You like the monkeys? I oh. will never think of the monkeys without that. Another actor against type is Will Patton, the SM clad friend, partner, lover, who knows? Who knows? Of Kiki, played by Linda Fiorentino. I wonder how many years before her breakout role. Are you talking about Last Seduction? Yeah, which I think of as her breakout role. Yeah. Maybe that's unfair. So this is 85. 
Of course, she was in Vision Quest. Mm-hmm. A lot of Madonna running through everything here. Can't have 80s New York. I guess Madonna, so. I guess. Yeah, so she's After Hours 85. Wow. Last Seduction's 94. 94. Okay, a little wow, bit later than 10 years later. I don't know what, she hasn't worked since 2009? Between 85 and then she was working, but wow. I, Why did I, I think didn't she was it. just in something? I was reading a little bit about her and she had a bittersweet quote when she was like, you know, after Last Seduction, <laughs> I would go out on dates and all of the men that I would date would expect me to be this... Mm. Like strange, Sexy. voracious, sexual, like yeah. a femme fatale. And he's just like, and I'd always see the same look of disappointment <laughs> across their face when they would realize that I'm just, an just another person. Oh, hold on, meet you. What have they done? Oh, what are these guys, sailors? Look at this work. That's one of the best lines yeah. in the whole movie. <laughs> it's taking them hours. How'd they get in? How'd who get in? The burglars. The burglars? What burglars? The ones who took your sculpture and your TV set. <laughs> Neil and Peppy. Who? It was Neil and Peppy. They're friends of mine. I just sold them my television for 300 bucks. How did you get a hold of my sculpture? This the guy? Yeah. I'm Horst. I'm Paul. Hi. That was rude of you before, Paul. You really ought to be ashamed of yourself. I am. I don't know what could have come over me. Lack of discipline. Possibly. And what comes up there, of course, is Neil and Peppy, played by Cheech oh. and Chong. They're pretty funny. They're pretty movie. funny. And just their, their very presence, because here's another background thing, is that there are these robberies going on in the neighborhood, <laughs> which I guess are being done by Cheech and Chong, but the one, like... <laughs> The one uh, actual transaction that they went through, <laughs> Griffin Dunn's character interrupted. So they lose the TV that they paid 300 bucks for, yeah. and they lose the sculpture, lose which, the ends sculpture. Up, which ends up bringing back. Uh, they are really funny in it. Um, Dick Miller, who is the person in the diner with Rosanna Arquette, who has the title line, he is the that guy to end all that guys. Because every time I see him, I'm like, oh, that's, that's literally, that I guy. say, that's that guy. Yes. If you've seen Chopping Mall. that's Chopping or Shopping? Chopping. Oh. Uh, about these like robot security things that run amok and murder all these people in a mall. He's also in Gremlins. Yes. That's the Howling, awesome. the Terminator. Piranha. And Piranha. Right. So wait, he's the waiter, right? Yeah. There's another that guy who was in a movie we almost did this week, Victor Argo. Yes. Who's in King of New York. He's one of the police detectives that's trying to track down yeah. Christopher Walken's gangster character. But here he's got a quick little role. It is so freaking funny, especially because <laughs> um, for listeners who haven't seen it yet, the whole thing is he tries to get on the subway to leave after leaving Roseanne Arquette. But in the time since he got down there, the fare went up. He doesn't have enough. The guy who's the sub, you know, this is not a that guy, but that scene with the subway, the subway. I um, thought he must have been a real person. MTA worker, but I guess he was an actor. Murray Moston is oh, his name. So freaking fun. Not only the dialogue there is great. 
But then when Griffin Dunn finally is like, forget it. Another transgression that he's like, I'm just going to do a little small thing. And he hops and turns out literally right into like a, a giant hulking cop. police officer. You could watch it over and over again because it's it's no. such a smart comedy. And it's also not dated, even though so much of no. it is about like a, a kind of New York that doesn't exist in quite the same way. I think this kind of freak show always exists in a city as big as New York. Yeah, I, I meant that like- You some just of have to go de- farther out of a town to get it. That's what I meant. Right. The <laughs> details are a little bit different, you know, instead of being a sculptor, it might be a video artist or whatever, but yeah, all the same kind of thing. But go, but go back to Victor Sculptors Arco. are weirder than video artists. Agree to disagree. <laughs> I don't know how many video artists you've had truck with, but boy, that was before my time. Nutsos. After my time. Uh, So he goes in at one point to a diner, you know, and he lies and says, like, I'm going to order something just to use the restroom. And then he leaves. Oh, and the guy sets up the spot for him. And instead of just leaving, he, like, places an order. I'm just going to go put a quarter in the meter in my car. And uh, see, I'll have a burger, medium rare, coffee. And then leaves. But this is part of the essential goodness of Paul Hackett. He just can't break off any of these social interactions in in a direct and rude way. So he makes it worse for himself by saying, oh, I'm just going to go put a quarter in the meter. Also worse for the uh, for the guy there, because he's like, no, what? Now I just made a burger for nothing. But then later on, he ends back up. And this is why. Yeah, this is why it's so great. Oh, when he gets it, he he sees John Hurd's character through the window, comes into the diner to speak to him. John Hurd leaves. Uh, and then the burger gets served. He to just him. brings oh, over the burger and the coffee. Payoff. Ballhouse says, like, I think he grew up with Max Ophels as some type of parental figure or uncle, even though they weren't really related. Great German filmmaker Max Ophels, who Scorsese also reveres. He and Marty had a lot of the same film references from the 40s and the 50s. And he said that when he would talk to Marty, he would just reference other movies in order to convey the type of shot he wanted. But it worked really well for Michael Ballhouse because he knew exactly what he was yeah. talking about. So, for example, in one scene in the movie, Marty would be like, you know that shot in Marnie where the girl shoots the horse? It's like that shot. And Michael Ballhouse knows exactly what yeah. he means. Another interesting crossover to Taxi Driver, the bar where Terry Gar works and John Hurd is the bartender is called Terminal Bar. Terminal Bar is in Taxi Driver. It's a bar where Travis Bickle goes to. Uh-huh. But it was closed down by the time they shot this movie. So they used Emerald Pub in Soho as a stand-in. I was wondering about that because it takes place downtown. Terminal Bar was by Port Authority. I was yeah. confused by that, but yes, that makes yeah. no, That's that, just that an homage sense. to Taxi Driver. Got it. Another hilarious scene when he tries to get into the Berlin nightclub. And this is another one of those little things where the casting is so good. Clarence Felder. What other credits does Clarence Felder have? Um, you know, he's got some. But, he does? Uh, it's, you know, he was in Last Boy Scout. Hmm. He was in All for Liberty, The Ride. Does he always, play the, does he always play the heavy? Uh, I'm assuming. I love Griffin Dunn's line. May I enter? I can't let you in at the moment. Will it be possible to be uh, admitted at a, at a more convenient time for the club? It is possible, but not at the moment. God. If you're so drawn to it, try and force your way in. Got any money? Yes, I have money. Is that what you Which want? Which he does money? not. Why didn't you just ask for that in the first place, man? Here, it's not much, but it's all I've got. I'll take your money, because I don't want you to feel you left anything. I'm trying. You keep the quarter. You still have to wait a few minutes. Hey, Mark. Why doesn't he have to wait a few minutes? Tonight is Mohawk night. If you had a Mohawk, you could go in. 
come on. We're both adults. Why don't you just let me in? Do you really want to go inside? Yes, you know, it's very important. I've got people in there. They're expecting me. Why don't you just let me in? You sure? It is a little... Kafkaesque mini scene. Kafka's The Trial was the closing line from a couple episodes right. ago. And that movie also opens with that very same scene of this from this thing before the law where there's a gatekeeper and somebody who wants to get in and he's like... And I just, oh, that's <laughs> the one where they, uh, he waited by the gate yeah. and then no one let him in. And then he on his deathbed and then the gatekeeper shows up and is like, the gate was always for you alone. Yeah. I love that they don't shoot that with the stereotypical like hundreds of trendy extras. It's just a personal humiliation. Totally. And a trial for him to get through. And then the same night, just a couple hours later, he gets a flyer for a conceptual art party at the same club. And he goes back and is completely deserted except for Joy, I guess. Uh, the last woman that he meets who is brilliantly played by Verna Bloom yes. from The Graduate. Or Animal House. And Animal House. Yeah. But before that, he runs afoul of another woman, Catherine O'Hara. Oh, my God. All of the women in this, like him, seem nice at first and then start going so is sort of being out there and she is so freaking funny but then she takes sort of a vengeful turn because she sees the flyer put up by yeah. Terry Gar. We have to first play a little of their scene in her apartment. Yeah. They meet because he finally takes $20 off a sculpture <laughs> and he's going to get a cab finally and it's the same cab driver yes. who just snatches his $20 and just Leaves. Departs. Oh, this is great. Look, I got the money back. Look at that. Isn't that great? Now you can take me uptown. Great. I'll be right back. See how you like it! Don't, don't, don't. Catherine O'Hara was getting out of the cab and nicks his arm and he's bleeding. And he ends up back in her apartment where they have this scene over his attempt to make a phone call. I'm sorry. Um, I, I just... You wouldn't believe what I've been through tonight. You just wouldn't believe it. Oh, I'm, uh, I'm an ice cream vendor, Mr. Softy. What? I... You misunderstood me. I didn't ask what you did for a living. I said, you wouldn't believe what I've been through tonight. It's not boring. And I have my own Mr. Softy truck. It's not, it's, it's not boring. Ah. Also, you need a class four New York State chauffeur's license. Guess who has one? Got it on my own. Mm -hmm. Manhattan, please. Could I have the number of a Peter Patzik? Uh, that's P-A-T-Z-A-K. Need a pencil? Nah. On Mulberry Street. Thank you. Five, eight, one, nine, six, one, two. <laughs> that was funny. That was funny. Just... Potsick, please. P-A-T-Z-A-K on Mulberry Street in Manhattan. Five, eight, six, two. Don't. Nine, Don't. three, Don't. eight, zero. Oh, <laughs> now I have forgotten the number. What is wrong with you? Are you all right? I have had a terrible, terrible night. Do you understand? I'm just trying to entertain you. I don't want any entertainment. I'm sorry I did that. I'm sorry. I just, I, I'm under. Oh, God. I, 
I'm unable to get home tonight, you know? I can't get home. And I'm trying desperately to find a place where I can stay tonight. Just sleep. All I want to do is sleep. Uh, there is a place on Spring Street. I could stay there, but I don't want yeah, to. Yeah, why not? Why not what? Why aren't you there? There's a place on Spring Street. Go. Because a bartender who lives there, his girlfriend, killed herself tonight. And I think it's because of me. I see. That's out then. And then, like you said, then after this, he's pursued again and goes and finds Verna Bloom oh. at the Berlin, which is such a point. Like you said an hour before yeah. had been a rockin' Mohawk night punk club, and now is just one one lonely one old lonely lady. lady sitting there for a drink. And you know, the bartender is actually Scorsese's first AD on the movie. Oh, no kidding, Stephen Lim. Yeah, he's the first AD, but he plays the bartender at the conceptual art party. Oh, that's funny. Before Verna Bloom rescues him, and she's great. I think all the different scenes, the different women that he interacts with are so different from each other in such a great way. When one man. Oh, yes. A lot of credit to. Street pickup. Oh, my God. Robert Plunkett is so freaking hilarious in this. He has a phone call in that guy's apartment where he finally is unhinged. And he's the guy's like, well, what happened? And then he launches (laughs) into this insanely brilliant monologue. Why don't you just go home? Well, I've been asking myself that one all night long. So? So what happened? Why can't you? All right. I met this girl tonight, okay, in a coffee shop. She gave me her phone number. So when I got home, I gave her a call. She said to come on over. On the cab on the way down here, all my money flew out the window. Then I got to know this girl, and I didn't really get along with her that well. It didn't really work out, so I left. I tried to take a subway tonight, but the fare went up. Did you know that, that the fare went up? Yes. You knew that? I didn't know that. I didn't know anything about that. So I haven't got enough money to get home. Until I meet this bartender, a really nice guy who wanted to lend me the money. I mean, he really wanted to give me the money, but I mean, they'd actually purchased this piece of work here, you know? I didn't know that. I didn't know anything about that. Now, she's also pissed off at me, and for this, I don't blame her at all, for the way I treated her friend. And it was inexcusable, so I marched right in there to apologize, but she'd already killed herself. I was too late. So I remembered that. And he was just about to give me the money when all of a sudden his phone rang. They cut uh, it down in the movie. I was about to say, and I think that's a great directorial thing. Like, it's even funnier to think of like fading in and yeah, out. He because does. Of course, already seen all of it. But on the page, it reads like a great monologue. It's funny for all of the that guys that we have mentioned. There are so many people in this movie. Who could have been who that guy. have very few credits. Plunkett has four. Mm-hmm. Uh, the last of which was in 2011. But like, there are the two lovers that are in the bar at one point talking to him when when he finds out about the death of. You mean the two gay guys? The two gay guys. Which, by the way, that's got to be pretty damn close to like one of the first same-sex kisses featured in a movie. You're probably right. I looked up a couple articles and they're all about sort of like TV ones from like the 90s when like Dawson's Creek or whatever. But as even just a background shot, I thought it was kind of daring for 1985. Yes. Uh, You have two just motorcycle leather daddies making out with each other at the bar. And there's so many funny times where one of them just turns and says, well, it's not your fault, is it? Of course, of course it is his fault. <laughs> so when they got the film into the edit room, the first cut was something like two hours and 45 minutes long. Uh-huh. And they played it and it just did not, had no rhythm. So they went in. It's kind of like, you know, murdering your darlings. There wasn't anything they took out that they didn't love. It's one of the few movies where we've talked about this before. When you watch the deleted scenes on the DVD, sometimes you're sort of like, yeah, I, I understand why that was cut out. But the deleted scenes on this one are all really good. Yeah. And there's more Catherine O'Hara. Is there more Verna Bloom? Um, there's one more bit of Verna Bloom. Part of the reason why I ask is the end of the movie is great. 
So but good. the end of the movie was also very troubled. Do you remember what it was in the screenplay? It simply ends with Paul Hackett in the paper mache that Verna Bloom has covered him in so that he is not attacked and killed by the mob being driven in the back of Cheech and Chong's van. Got it. And we don't know what happens. And then nobody liked that. Like, they didn't quite know. And I, Martin Scorsese was asking a lot of other directors, including Brian De Palma, Steven Spielberg, and Terry Gilliam. And one of the people who, I guess, I don't know if he was a mentor in general or just happened to be around, but Michael Powell, famously of the Red Shoes. Thelma Schoonmaker's husband. Ah. She was his last wife. But he said, he's like, oh, he should just end up back at work. I think he even said that sort of early out in the process. Yes. And Martin Scorsese's like, oh, who cares? You know, yeah, man, he what actually, does he know? <laughs> And I don't know who made the suggestion that I don't think they ever shot it, but they storyboarded, which was, as we said, this is what you would have preferred. I would have loved, loved this ending. He yeah. goes down to Verna Bloom's apartment. The mob is coming. So instead of wrapping him in paper mache and making a sculpture out of him, she's like, come here. And he, he does climbs up into her, her vagina. And then she leaves and re-gives birth to him on the West Side Highway. And then he is revealed slithering and slicked in birth effluvia but in the middle of the West Side but, but, but reborn as an adult yeah uh, sort of like you if anybody has watched uh, Lars von Trier's Kingdom you know spoiler for the kingdom uh, when yeah, uh, Udo Kier becomes a huge baby uh, that's pretty freaking awesome yeah it's already done in 2001 I suppose <laughs> So instead, in the back of Cheech and Chong's van, they take a corner a little too quick, and he is deposited right at his office yes. building. The gate's open. He's covered in plaster dust. He goes up and resumes his work day. Part of the reason why I like that story is like, this ending is so perfect. You would think that somebody had planned yes. everything out. And just when you talk about the amount of deleted scenes, everything mm -hmm. is so tight and so perfect. It has such a strong vision, and there is nothing that doesn't pay off. It's amazing to think of how much was being changed on the fly. Having just seen The Irishman, which I think is a complete masterpiece, his control, the scene we just played with Catherine O'Hara, the way the camera swoops to the phone, the camera makes this really aggressive quick shot to the phone, which he then picks up. It's this jarring energy. Yeah. And it's like, that's the manicness of where we are with Paul Hackett. That's where Paul Hackett is. It's such a little thing, but it's such a specific thing. Ballhaus says that Scorsese very much is a guy who like directs in the camera. And he's like, you know, I work with some directors where it's like they just shoot everything. Right. They shoot all the coverage of everything. And then as a cinematographer, it's like you don't even know what was used in the final scene because the editor has to choose all of these things. He uses this as an example. One of the most famous shots in the movie is when Linda Fiorentino drops the keys right. from the Soho loft. And you have this shot of her. You have the keys dropping. You have him looking at the keys. It's about eight shots in this sequence. And it was by far the biggest problem that they faced. Right. They tried a bunch of different things, putting the camera in a basket on bungee cords. And that nearly took Griffin Dunn's head off. Which and he didn't were, realize. He didn't realize. He was blissfully <laughs> unaware. Griffin Dunn has some great anecdotes where he's like, you know, I was the producer of the movie and I was the star. And that never really came up except twice. One time was when he would just offhandedly ask Lisa Robinson, so how are we doing? And that meant, are we under budget? Are we on time? And she would say, Marty's shooting too much film. We're going to go over on film. Can you mention that to him? And he was like, so you want me to tell him to shoot less film of me? <laughs> and she's like, you're right, that's not going to work. And then the other thing was she and Marty and Michael Bauhaus noticed that he had almost been decapitated by the camera device they rigged up to try and do the key shot. But Bauhaus says, you know, when you look at it, there's these eight specific shots. And then Marty comes in and he's like, 
Yeah, I just saw it again. It was on TV the other night. You know what? It's still not right. <laughs> still not right. <laughs> Marty Scorsese, to have this link to Michael Powell, to Max Ophuls, to Fassbinder, like that's what's amazing about movies. You can have a movie like this and the collection of these people, Griffin Dunn to Joan Didion. It's all connected to the history of movie making. And then it's like, this is the manifestation of that, even though it's this small movie about downtown New York. It's also a community, you know, that in that yeah. overlap, things like the very fact that Tim Burton was considered, the fact that he talked to Terry Gilliam yes. as well. You know, all these peers who were excited about what each other yeah. were doing. I'm sure there was competitiveness as well. I'm sure they were talking shit behind each other's back, but there was at least... I can't imagine Spielberg doing that. Yeah. You, you don't know. Oh, come on. Oh, Why do you have to kill all my a, idols, Chris? <laughs> that's what idols Jeez. are there for. You know, another thing that's so 80s about this, and what I love about this movie, this time in the 80s, this time in New York, because it was so cheap, there were people able to do all the weird stuff that they're doing in this movie. Art plays such a big role in this. Like the very fact that he is literally smuggled out and delivered from death via art. Yes. I think it's such a great ending. Art is forever. Doesn't, doesn't Cheech Chong say that? I know, man. I take a stereo any day. Yeah, what do you know, man? A stereo's a stereo. Art is forever. Scorsese having been an outsider wanting to make his own mm -hmm. movies speaking in his idiom, which some people mm -hmm. that were older were poo-pooing it, and yet he is drawn to it in the same way that Paul Hackett is. I was actually listening, watching a, an interview with Roger Ebert. Well, you probably weren't just watching an interview with him because... He's well, not here, I mean, but... Oh, you mean you were watching magic an old of one. YouTube. Yeah, it was yes. an old one. Well, and this, he was saying specifically, he's like, I think Martin Scorsese is like one of our, is the greatest director, Some, yes. something along those lines. And it was so funny to think that in 1982 or whenever he was saying that, that that would have been a bold opinion yeah. or that Martin Scorsese ever needed somebody to champion him. Of course, it's now an avowed masterpiece. A movie like Raging Bull is not the most obvious commercial undertaking. Totally. <laughs> you know, another Ebert thing I was stunned by, which I love, he has a book called Scorsese by Ebert. It's really well written. It's very much about how he sees Marty as such a contemporary in terms of their filmic references. And he's very quick to point out, he's like, you know, we were never friends, but we always enjoyed conversing with one another about movies. In the book, there's a great excerpt about how Scorsese moves his camera. And this is such a thing now from the famous, you know, steady cam shot through the kitchen in Goodfellas. Mm -hmm. In The Irishman, there's a brilliant pairing shot with that, except the hallways that we're moving through are a retirement home. Like, this is where the life leads after the nightclubs close. But Ebert's talking about the way Marty moves the camera and it's on such great display in After Hours. Typically, we consider that camera movement to be sort of a voyeuristic thing. But he says, what Scorsese's camera says to me is not, look how I see this, but instead, look with me at this. The way we're moving it gives us a way of looking at what's about to unfold. So, man... Love After Hours. There's so much going on above and beyond a hilarious fucking movie, which today stands up yes. as so darkly funny and brilliant. I think that your signature openings get appropriate amount of attention. I don't think, however, that your signature endings get enough. I think we need to center them in the narrative of the podcast. So I'll cut it back into the center. What Chris does is he plays the last line of dialogue from a famous or infamous or known or slightly well-known film. And what we want you to do is be first to figure out what it was. When the episode goes up, we'll put up a image from the film that you're talking about that doesn't give it away. And we will say, who can identify? Identify Chris's final line from this week's episode. Oh, I love that. And we'll do I that think on, that's great. Do that on Facebook. Facebook finally has a reason for being. All right, let's do rants and raves. I've got a rave. All right. I've got. I've, is it going to be the same as mine? 
I doubt it. Okay. But I'm very excited about this. Do you know the Up series? Disney's Up? Different Up. This is- You mean like 25 Up, 72 Up, 112 Up? Michael you're getting Afton? the numbers wrong, but yes, Michael Afton. Yes. The series of documentaries shot sure. in the UK starting in 1964 was the first one. Seen all of them. Well, have you seen all of them? Have you seen 63? Uh, that's the one that just came out. I have not seen that. I saw whichever the one before that. What is it? Every 10 years? 56. Every seven years. This project, they filmed 27 year olds in 1964 and they've been following them. So they've made this series of movies in uh, 2019. 63 Up was aired in the UK. And if they're 63, everybody's getting a little bit older, including Michael Apted, who's, I guess, 15 years older than them. So 63 is the newest one. And I think partially because they're all getting older and and a time in life, it's in some ways the most openly about the nature of life in some ways. The mm-hmm. other ones are all fantastic. It's, it's such a worthwhile series to watch. These characters are fascinating and, and things happen that you don't expect. And it's just very exciting that the, mm-hmm. that the new one is out. And I'd sort of forgotten about it uh, yeah, after I, seeing 56, but the fact that the new one came out got me to watch it and, it and it was just the most moving thing I had seen in a, in a long time. See the yeah, I'm excited to see that too. My rave is a film that I know you saw that I finally saw, Parasite. Yes. Wow. What a crazy, bizarrely moving film. Yes, totally. Why was I moved? It's so weird. It's like, I've had such weird reactions to movies lately. Directors are so adept at leading you through complicated places that in a movie like Parasite, which is both an acidly funny social satire and takedown of class systems, much like Joker, in the end, you have a tremendous amount of sympathy for some people who do horrendous things. Right. I think I react strongly to it because the world we live in right now far too often gets reduced to these black and white statements, which really are not realistic in terms of humanity. And I feel like, God, in this movie, he just brilliantly pulled it off. And the acting is so good. I couldn't say enough about it. However, to enter into the Marty versus Marvel, I don't know if you saw this quote from him and Variety just came out yesterday, which was brilliant. (laughs) They were sort of having a conversation about that. And he said, look, I understand what Marty is saying, but there's room for a lot of different types of movies in the world. And I think part of what Marty is really trying to say is more that economics of studio filmmaking have been so changed by the vast success of those Marvel movies that it can seem hard to get more traditional movies financed. You know, here's a guy sitting on a $150 million movie that Netflix paid for in The Irishman. Right. Now, $150 million is a lot of fucking money. Yeah. And if it were traditionally released, you'd have to spend another $150 million on prints and all that kind of stuff, which Netflix obviously isn't doing. So anyway, they ask Bong Joon-ho, well, would you ever direct a Marvel movie? And he had a really funny answer, which is this. I have a personal problem. I respect the creativity that goes into superhero films, but in real life and in movies, I can't stand people wearing tight-fitting clothes. And just seeing someone in tight clothes is mentally difficult. I don't know where to look, and I feel suffocated. Most superheroes wear tight suits, so I can never direct one. I don't think anyone will offer the project to me either. If there's a superhero who has a very boxy costume, maybe I can try. So Chris, can you help him find a superhero that wears a boxy or loose-fitting costume? Well, certainly somebody like the character Box, who's a member of Alpha Flight, who's like a robot. You know, that would that would certainly do. Is he, is he a human Bio. or a robot? Or a- it's a human who can put himself in like a techno-organic body. Mm. Uh, so, you know, so it's a little quasi okay. thing. It's a little bit of an, an Android thing. Dr. Druid, you know, he wears him. like robes. You know, so it's not very tight. Yes, there's there's definitely possibilities for him. Okay. Another quote that I read from him, I set out to make something very specific about an issue I see in Korean culture. Yeah. And now it's apparently more, it's... (laughs) People are hitting them up for the remake rights because they're like, oh yes, that speaks to our class issues in Denmark. Yeah. And everyone's like... It's it's universal. Like, you'll you'll be fine. What's Uh, funny about him and probably a kind of, not a problem, but... 
people have asked me about it and I've had such fascinating assumptions from various people who huh. say like, oh, yeah, I don't want to. That's like a horror movie, right? Or, yes. oh, I heard that's really violent. Literally, no one knows how to characterize it right. because his films are so hard to characterize. And the answer is, yes, it's all of that. It's all of it. But it, it's so worth it. Whatever you oh think you God, don't like about so any funny. one of those First things. First and foremost, it's, it's worth funny. It. And it's original. And it's beautifully made, like all of his things. By the time this comes out, Irishman will have streamed on Netflix. So most yes. of the people that waited will have seen it. In a lesser format. I also want to just put a general rave in for the state of the movies right now. Like every time I've gone to the movies, now granted, a couple of those times have been probably like, well, one of them is a Netflix funded endeavor. But really going back to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood through Parasite, Frozen 2, which I saw in a screening, which I thought was great. One of the hardest things to do in Hollywood is to follow up a movie as iconic as Frozen. Love it or hate it, it was a seismic nuclear explosion amongst young girls. And of course, if you read a lot of the reviews, they say they got it wrong. Uh -huh. However, I think they got it more than right. I actually think it's a stronger, more interesting, more artistic movie yeah. than the first one was. My wife pointed out one of the things they did smart was they aged the movie through where the girls that were three, four... Yeah. when Frozen first came out, are now 8, 9. And some of the things that Anna and Elsa are going through are shot through with these kind of life lessons. There's really good lessons about who to live your life for and how to find your true self, even when that's in conflict with outside expectation. Anyway, so I posted that and I saw that your sister said that she was very excited because she had tickets to go this weekend. I said, please tell me you're making Chris go. Alas, she said, no, they were sold out and they couldn't get a ticket for you. Ugh. However, so I, I <laughs> good news. Uh, all these movies, like I've had a great time going to the movies. I was having the same thought. Yeah. I think as with most times, you know, there's always some independent film community. There yes. are always some more foreign films, you know, sometimes they're more or less popular, but we are at a time when like a lot of exciting stuff is happening and, yeah. and whatever difficulties something like Netflix does create, it at least does create the possibility for things like The Irishman to be made. Yeah. Uh, just to add a, a few more things, I saw Jojo Rabbit, which I think right. is, is excellent, and The Lighthouse. Oh, you finally uh, you saw the lighthouse. Eggers. Was it everything you wanted? Eggers. It was very different than I expected uh -huh. it to be, which is always uh, exciting. Right. But Robert Pattinson He's and great. Willem Dafoe, boy, which one of them's a bigger crazy mm. person? It's a fascinating. You mean in movie. real life or in the movie? Both. All right, Chris, would you like to move on to headlines? Yes. Headlines. I only have one for you today. This from Endgadget. Human patient put in suspended animation for the first time. Sci-fi fans have been talking about suspended animation for years. Well, doctors have successfully placed humans in suspended animation. It's officially called Emergency Preservation and Resuscitation, or EPR. And basically what they do is they cool you rapidly by replacing your blood with ice-cold saline until your heart stops beating and your brain activity almost completely stops. At a normal body temperature, cells need a constant supply of oxygen, but the cold temperature slows or stops the reactions, so the human brain can typically survive for five minutes without oxygen before damage occurs. But through EPR, a surgical team has two hours to work on the patient's injuries before they're warmed up and their heart is restarted. Much like a Tesla, five years from now, Chris, will be able to drive 1,000 miles, where right now it can only go 330. Right. Ten years from now, we'll be able to put you under EPR and wake you up when our taping is over. Right. <laughs> No, yeah, because, because then I can really go, go over. Yeah. 
<laughs> you want to talk Goodfellas? Okay. Dude, uh, Let's talk the scene with Karen the only in issue. the bedroom and the gun. Uh, that's awesome. That's yeah. very cool. I wish they had asked me because I sort of knew that that would work. Oh, you did? Yeah. From your own experiments? Uh, yeah, just you know, more of instinctual. I wouldn't have been able to put it into words quite as succinctly mm. as that. But yeah, I had a sense that, uh, would you say saline? Yeah. <laughs> Freeze that. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I don't really have a Bomb Squad trailer, although there's a new trailer for Cats out. You know, I was actually going to say, when I saw that there was a second trailer, I was like, have we become so jaded that we are not horrified all over again by the second trailer for Cats? Well... Are, are you being are you being facetious? When it came out, of course, I heard people being horrified because of first. the catamation, just sort of like the strangeness of it, and people being like, "What the hell is this? Why are they so big? Why are they so small? Why is there a tail coming out of its butt?" Like all of these things that people would make fun of. I've never seen cats. I don't know anything about it. Look, it's. I guess it's about like. It's about cats. I mean, they can put all whatever bells and whistles they want to. <laughs> yeah, it's about cats. And it has some like famous songs. Yeah. So the first trailer came out and there was all the caterwauling that you're talking about. No pun intended. <laughs> well, pun, pun taken. Um, now I can see the studio cannily trying to seed the online conversation with a little positivity. For example, Jason Derulo, the R&B singer, is featured in the second trailer and they released a little more footage of him and they were kind of trying to create a little like, ooh, thirst trap, Jason Derulo and cats, look out. But then they also tried to impose a little more story structure. Which might be why it didn't get quite the response that the first one did. That's what really disappointed me. But if you want to watch a little of this. Yeah, absolutely. Tonight is a magical night where I choose the cat that deserves a new life. Going to the ball could get dangerous. <laughs> Come on! Let's dance! I judge a cat by its soul. I've got plenty of soul. Spotlight. And a drum roll, please. Milk! It's party time. The most deserving cat will be reborn into another life. So they can be who they've always dreamed of being. Here we go! I love it. So I guess here we're emphasizing more the concept that uh, one cat will be chosen to have another life. Exactly. So all you other cats, you're out are not as good. You're going to die. I honestly, I can't tell what I think about this thing. I have to. I don't know that I'll see it in the theater, but I hope it does well because there is still a theater kid in me. Just knowing that that's where it comes from and seeing some of the theatricality in some of the lines and the yeah, it's not it cynical. Me. So maybe for that alone, it might triumph. Certainly, it will play well to the furry community. I mean, been, that's kind of the people that like are most excited about this. They've been They're, looking for their Citizen Kane for Yeah, years. this is like porn for them. No, I mean, porn is the one thing they've got too much of. This is mainstreaming <laughs> them. I will say this. I certainly stand corrected from a box office perspective on Ford v. Ferrari. And might I also say a critical perspective. I'm going to see it tonight. And if it does turn out that you have that same reaction and feel that, that same way, that will go to the people who cut the trailer. I don't know how you do a bad trailer with Christian Bale, Matt Damon, 
James Mangold. I'll, I'll tell you exactly. You pick out what you think are like the most sort of like, Broad. let's say, um, oh, look, yeah. here are these irascible guys. They're fighting. They're yeah. talking about how much they're outsiders. Right. Like all the stuff that seems so obviously market tested yes. and insincere. Like that's what bothered me about the trailer was it looked insincerely touch on these very prevalent themes. Blah, blah, blah. I think uh, you said it very well. The only other thing I have for you, Chris, is... Hello? Latchkey TV, you said you'd prepared some things, but you lost the I can't find the, you lost right. the book. I was just going to play you one brief thing oh, since we've been talking for quite a while. 1987, I saw that there was an animated series called Beverly Hills Teens. <laughs> Finally, I want to know how they live. Maybe you could just sort of give the listeners like a, a spot visual translation narration okay, as it. you watch whatever this is. Okay, so first we have the crest of this manor and now these kids come out in a huge limo that there must be like 18 of them and this limo has a pool now they're all uh are they at a mall Oop. one of them is a nerd he has yep. glasses and he's making a robot that sex he's robot sex robot uh somebody's playing golf with an apple no no yeah it's a lot of decadence a lot of people doing sports yeah, and eating at the same time i don't uh, know what this is I guess those look like they might be like passport stamps as if uh, they travel a lot. And now here's somebody playing a guitar. She looks like Jem. Hair metal. Yeah, yeah hair gem. metal. Uh, it's on oh. a beach. Oh, not actually on a beach. Yeah. This is what I call the boobs section. I guess this is... Also the solo cup. Pre-selfie culture. A lot of people getting pictures taken of yeah. themselves. Uh, and now Beverly Hills Teens. And that end logo looks a lot like uh, Down and Out in Beverly Hills it does. poster. I was trying to think, would I watch that? No. I think when I was home, well, 1987, I was a senior in high school, so I wouldn't have watched that. <laughs> but I definitely would have had bad judgment about it. I would have thought it was cheesy as fuck. It does know? look cheesy as fuck. And it does look like, hey, kids. Hey, cool kids. You guys like guitars, right? Well, until next week. Sure, Paul had a rough night, but I hope he and you, for that matter, dear listener, don't take the wrong lesson from it. And I'm not going to leave here ever, ever again, because I love you all. And, oh, Annie M., there's no place like home.